And everyone else, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And if you are able, would you please stand with me as we read God's Word to honor God's Word as what it is. It's an errant, infallible, eternal Word of God. We're going to read John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. May be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We say that because it comes from Isaiah 40, verse 8, and it is eternally true. Let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would remove all hindrances, particularly the hindrance of the preacher, or that he would not get in the way in any way to what it is that you would communicate to your people, that you have wanted your people to know since the times that our Lord walked on the earth. You want us to know these words that he has spoken. We must have them. We need them. So we ask that you would apply them and, and bury them deep into our hearts. And may they resonate with us all day, all week. And may they shape us as to how we walk every day from here on out. Bless this time to your glory. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as you could tell from our text this morning, these five verses, we looked at verse 1 last week, but we're going to look at the whole section this week, that one of the repeated words in this section is the word glory, or glorify, repeated five times. And it brings to mind a cry of the Protestant Reformation called soli deo gloria, which is Latin for the glory of God alone. That was to be the sum of the purpose of the Reformation that what those men were seeking to do was to call people's minds back to the purpose of man's life. And then a next generation followed them and wrote in the Westminster Shorter Catechism the first question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer being the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. See, no longer was that generation going to put up with glory going to the Pope or glory going to the state, or glory going to the church or to the self, nothing but glory to God. And we are the recipients of that. We, we are in that lineage of that same history, knowing that God is the only one worthy of glory. This is how he began his commandments in Exodus 21 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He says who he is and why he must be worshipped as he is. Glory to God is the foundation of all morality and of all justice in a society. And God goes on to speak in that same collection of writings, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and following, when Moses is told by God to say the following, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The glory of God is the foundation to all healthy families and churches, as we read here. That how else can we know and who else are we to love with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind? Who else are we supposed to be telling our children about? Who else are we supposed to be talking about constantly when we're sitting in our houses, when we're walking along the way, when we're going to bed, when we're waking up? What else is supposed to mark our homes written on the doorposts? Glory of God. We don't... We don't have any bearings without the glory of God. 
who do we glorify? If we don't know who to glorify, then we have no foundation. Do I glorify my spouse? My boss at work? My, my country? My kids? Who do I teach my kids? Or what do I teach my kids to glorify? To hold up above all things? Me? Do I teach them to glorify themselves? That they're beautiful or they're talented or they're wealthy or they're funny or, or I'm those things? Who do I glorify? The athletes? Actors? My hobbies, my knowledge, I mean, what, what, I have no idea what to do to structure my life. The people of God, though, are anchored by the command to glorify God. It anchors us because it categorizes and it prioritizes everything and everyone else in life, which is why it must be the beginning and the end of all that we do and all that we believe. The glory of God is the beginning, the glory of God is the ending. And that's what Christ's focused on the prayer for himself is in verses 1 through 5 jesus is praying for himself in verses 6 through 19 he's praying for the disciples the, the men right there in the room and then in verses 20 through 26 he's praying for the church universal that will come out of this new covenant that he's about to usher in but in these first five verses the focus is entirely on the glory of god which includes himself because he himself is truly god and what we are given is a window and these five verses into inter-Trinitarian realities. The Trinity is something that, that baffles our minds to some extent that we can't go far enough into the truth of it because we're so limited in our understanding. But nevertheless, we can understand that there are three in one and that there must be interrelational dynamics between those three. And we're going to get to look at how a piece of that functions this, to this day, these five verses that the covenant of redemption that reformed theologians have looked back to before the foundation of the world, before time began, that God within himself covenanted within himself to save a people, to redeem a people for himself. We're going to see pieces of that, a small window into that. And our text breaks down under three headings. Verses 1 through 2, we'll see mutual glory and the Son's authority. And in verse 3, we'll see the glory of redemption. And in verses 4 and 5, we'll see mutual glory in the Son's ascension. Essentially, mutual glory bookending this, this um, passage with the glory of redemption, how we are saved in the middle. So verses 1 and 2, we'll look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. In that verse, we see glorified twice and we're going to see glory and glorify three more times in these five verses so it would be wise for us to first define those words what do they mean biblically the greek word glorify as a verb greek word is doxazo it means that where we get the word doxology do you hear it in there doxazo we get the definition comes from the uh, lexicons to influence one's opinion about another so as to enhance the latter's reputation to cause to have straightness. That's what it means to glorify. You're enhancing the, the opinion of somebody else to expand their reputation or to actually make them great. Splendid greatness. Now, glory is just the noun verb of that, or the noun iteration of that verb, and it's just doxa, where we get doxology. Again, it's the condition of being bright or shining or a state of being magnificent or honor as enhancement or recognition of status or performance. A transcendent being worthy, deserving of honor. So what it means to glorify is to persuade yourself or to persuade others of somebody's greatness, of somebody's praiseworthiness. Or it's making somebody great and famous by exalting them. Not that we're making God great as if he's not. But here, we're making him that here amongst us and in our own hearts. So really, you know how to glorify God if you know how to cheer for your favorite team. If you know how to tell others about your favorite blogger or you know how to campaign for a political candidate. You know what it is. You're telling somebody else of the worthiness of this individual or this group or this thing. Go check it out. Go read this thing. Go be there. Go watch this team. Vote for this person. Why? And you tell them reasons why. So we know how to glorify God if we know how to do those kinds of things. And what's interesting is that the word glory can mean literal brightness, actual light, shining brightness. 
you, you can't look away. You're captivated. You're drawn in to this light. It's honor for who they are and for what they've done. An undistracted version of that. If you've ever met a personal hero and you want to take a picture with them or get an autograph, you can't look away. You, you can't be moved from fixating on that person. If you've ever been captivated by someone or something's presence, it's just he's in the room or it's in the room or, or she's around and you can't stop looking. We, we know what glory and glorify means if we understand those kind of context, contexts. But what is Jesus doing here? We've got to remember where we are. That in light of his hour, verse 1 says, having come, where is Jesus' focus? Entirely on the glory of God. His hour having come, meaning I'm minutes away from being whipped, beaten, and having my head punctured by thorns, being mocked and hung up on a piece of wood publicly. I'm minutes from that. And what is he focused on? The glory of God. The glory of God. The first thing out of his mouth in prayer is God's glory. His heart beats in prayer for the glory of God, for God to get glory. That's what he's after. There's no concern here for his own comfort or his own well-being. We know that that struggle is coming in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he will default to the glory of God. He prays effectively right here in this one verse, lead me to my execution so that you might be glorified, so that you might be enhanced in the minds and the opinions of others. No concern for self, all concern for the glory of God. And this mindset of Christ rubs off on his immediate disciples, the men in the room. It rubs off on them. And we can see it. Sometimes we can see it better when it's, we know it's a human and not a God-man. So look at Acts 5, 40 through 42, and it says, And when they had called in the apostles, meaning the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Jerusalem and of that day, they called them in, they beat them, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So we're going to call you in, we're going to beat you and say, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Then they left the presence of the council, verb tense right here, rejoicing. They left the beating, they left the public humiliation, rejoicing. Why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The name above all names, the name that deserves all glory. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. They, all they care about is the glory. They don't care about themselves. They just care about the name. They said, don't preach in that name. They rejoiced that they were worthy to be suffered for that name. And then they went every day after that talking about that name that deserves all glory. And then Peter, who was in this room, says in 1 Peter 4.16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The disciples caught it eventually, that this is what Jesus was about, that in a moment, his imminent suffering is so near, all he cares about is the glory of God. And his disciples followed that example. Now we see also in this verse mutual glorification within the Trinity, because Jesus says, glorify your son, that the Son may glorify you. Glorify me so that I glorify you. Now that's what the cross did, or is going to do when we're in the timeline of John, but that's what the cross, that's what it does. It brings glory, that the Son's death brings glory to the Father and the Spirit, as well as to himself. It brings glory to all three. No member of the Trinity gets glory at the expense of another. It's not as if that when Jesus dies, he gets all the glory then, but when God creates, he gets all the glory then, and when the Spirit empowers and regenerates sinners, he gets all the glory then. No, they all share all of the glory equally in everything that they do. The glory is one, and it's for all three. The cross was a result of the covenant of redemption. This, this moment that happens prior to history, the triune God covenanting within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, to glorify himself by the redemption of sinners like us, saving hopeless sinners like us, that the Son's death would glorify the Father, the Spirit, and himself. And we can see that to be the case because each member of the Trinity is said in the New Testament to be the agent of the resurrection. 
each member of the Trinity is said to have done it. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So we see Paul say there that the Father raised the Son. But Jesus says in John 10, 17 through 18, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to, to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So Jesus there is saying, he's the one who caused the resurrection. And then Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And there the Holy Spirit is said to be the one doing the resurrection. So we don't have a contradiction here. We have a trinity here. We have three gods equal in power, equal in essence in every way. The entirety of the Godhead participates in the universe's most significant miracle, and they all receive equivalent glory from it. Equally share in that glory. God mutually glorifies himself in his persons what we have in a sense is what jesus is on the precipice of in time and in space is this reverberation of glory that's going to happen at the cross at the resurrection and at the ascension but he goes on to say where this mutual glory then connects and leads to verse 2 since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him Glorify me so that I might glorify you and I can do that because you've given me authority over all flesh The son has a given authority it can be rightly asserted that the God man Jesus was given universal authority by the father due to his earning of it during his life on earth We can see also Matthew 28 18 all authority has been given unto me go therefore and make disciples Jesus says and in some sense He's always had it Jesus as the second member of the Trinity. Colossians 1.16, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, John 1, 1 through 4, they all say that he was with God, he was God, he is God, he creates as God, so he always has that authority. But as the Messiah, as the son of David, as the prophet like Moses, as the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent, he earns that authority by living a perfect life and dying the sacrificial death as the one true sacrifice. And so now, as the authority haver, no one can challenge him. No one can contest this, not on any level. Thus, he's affirming his eternal glory. This is how the Puritan Matthew Henry said it. He said, note the church's king, meaning Jesus, is no usurper, as prince of this world is. Christ's right to rule is incontestable. Satan's a usurper, but Christ has been given rightfully authority that he earned earned all of it and what is the chief expression of the son's authority he says it in this verse he says i have been given all of this authority and then he explains the chief expression of that authority in verse two to do what authority over all flesh which is a hebraism over all humanity to do what to give eternal life to give eternal life to who to all whom you have given him he has authority to give complete salvation for the elect of God. God surely saved people before Jesus died and rose again. We know that and we understand that, but their pardon wasn't full and complete until he dies. Romans 3.25 tells us that in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So Abraham, Esther, Ruth, David, Joshua, Moses, all of these Old Testament saints, how are they saved? They're saved on credit that got paid at the cross to make their salvation full and complete. And everybody after the cross is saved on debit. It's already in the account. It's already been paid. These were saved on when it's going to be paid. We are all saved and everyone in the New Testament afterwards because it has been paid. And Jesus has the authority to do that. The sins had to be atoned for. Payment had to be made. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In real time, in real space, somebody had to die. Someone had, and it had to be a specific someone. And once Jesus did that, now salvation for all the elect was final and paid in full. Now eternal life can truly be given to all who repent and believe. 
Jesus earned that authority to award eternal life by the life that he lived and the death that he died, the resurrection that he undertook and the ascension that he followed with. Now, what does, to whom does Jesus give eternal life? To all whom you, the Father, have given me. The people that the Father gives to him. Now, we've seen this before in John, have we not? John 6, 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. A few verses later in 644. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then verse 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. What we have to see in those verses and what's reiterated here in this high priestly prayer is that if anyone is saved, it is because God has picked you up and given you to Jesus. You are a gift of the Father to the Son. And he has the authority and the power to save you because of what he's earned and what he's done. But you are a gift from the Father to the Son. That's how we're saved. God does indeed have authority over all flesh, and he grants repentance and faith that we must use, we call out with. But who does he grant it to? Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says, even as he chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, there's that covenant of redemption, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace to which he has blessed us in the beloved that's whom the elect of God is whom he has the authority to save how does this glorify God though if this is all intertwined in the glory of God how does it glorify God firstly because the Bible teaches it as true and all truth glorifies God Secondly, because God will be glorified. Without grace's gracious election, no one would believe and no one would be saved. Because Romans 3, 10 through 12 could not be more clear. There is none righteous. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one good, not even one. There are no seekers. God is the seeker. So if he did not come to us, we would never be saved. This is how he gets glorified. Because he intended to save, he died for names. Real names, real people. He didn't die just to make salvation possible. He, made it, he died to make it effectual. Real people. And if he has a bride, if he is a bride, who marries a bride that they don't choose? That they don't go for? That they don't look and love intentionally above all other women and we're the bride of christ and she will be there on the wedding day of revelation 19 all that are part of the bride will be there so god ensures his glory he covenanted within himself to do so but here we come to verse 3 the glory of redemption and this is eternal life jesus goes ahead to define it to define how it's obtained that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That Greek word for know is gnosko, and it's, it can be understand, perceive, discern, to be certain, and oftentimes it applies intimate, physical uh, connection. It's more than just an intellectual understanding. It involves affection and commitment. So what we see Jesus doing right here, even in the midst of this doctrine of election, that it does not stifle the free offer of the gospel. That we offer the gospel even more freely. It doesn't hide the narrow gate. What does the parable say? All are invited to the king's feast. Go out and shout it to everybody who will listen. Many are called, but few are chosen. We tell everybody that we can, that saving goodness can be known. You can be saved. Salvation comes through the knowledge of the one true God and his son, and eternal life is extended to all who know Christ in that way, in the same way that a rock climber knows his rope. 
and in the same way that a drowning victim knows what a life preserver is, in the same way that a chick knows his mother hen when the hawk is flying overhead, in the same way that a sailor knows the hull of his watertight boat. Here's how one commentator described this knowledge. To know the Father and Jesus Christ refers not merely to abstract knowledge, but to joyful acknowledgement of his sovereignty, glad acceptance of his love, and intimate fellowship with his person. That's what Jesus means when he says to know the true God and Jesus Christ, his sent one. That's what it means to know him. And is that not exactly what Jeremiah the prophet centuries earlier said the new covenant would be all about? When Jesus comes and we see, I read it every week, that this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. So Jesus ushered in, that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that this new covenant is not new in the sense that Jesus just made it up. It was prophesied, and this is how it was prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 34. In that day, when that covenant comes around, here's what it is. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. That's what's going to mark the covenant community in the New Testament is they all know Christ. We're not having to tell everybody, hey, know God. You make sure you need to know God. They all do. Everyone who's a part of the new covenant family, they all know them from the least to the greatest. Whenever we define the least or greatest, whether it's age, whether it's stature, the least or the greatest, they all will know me. Not just the priests, not just the educated, not just the literate, not just the ones from this specific family or this specific tribe. They will all know me. Everyone who's a part of my covenant family will know me. And what will he do, declares the Lord? I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's what we live in. We know to know Christ is to have your sins forgiven. Jesus just reiterates an Old Testament truth, Old Testament promises about the new covenant that he's ushering in these very moments. See, there's salvation and eternal life in no other God. So Jesus is honing in on with these disciples to make sure that they hear it, even in his own prayer, even while he's praying for himself. He can't help but send out the gospel clarion call. At the one true God of the Bible, he does not acknowledge competitors' coupons. He is the only one. Jesus will be the Savior of your soul, or he will be nothing to you. You cannot hedge your eternity by betting on all the horses. Is it Christ alone, or it is alone without Christ? He will share his glory with no one. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols or idols made out of money or idols made out of human flesh and human bone. He will not share his glory with anyone. The glory of God and the salvation of sinners comes in these ways. Why does giving eternal life to sinners glorify God? It highlights who he is. Let me just rattle off six traits of the one true God that we see in salvation. We see his mercy First of all, Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we see his justice. Romans 3, 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. We see his love, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We see his wrath in verse 4. Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We see his sovereignty, Acts 2, 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the divine plan and for, or the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then sixthly, we see his power, Acts 2, 24, the very next verse. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. We see God's traits in salvation. God is glorified by saving sinners because he's the only active party. It's, salvation is monergistic. It happens to all the work, therefore he gets all the credit and thus the glory. God is also glorified by saving sinners because it is a story which is unheard of. In what story and anywhere else does the hero die for the villain? That's the story of redemption. What, what groom pursues a bride who hates him and who is constantly joining herself with other men? What, what king has mercy on an entire populace in his kingdom who statedly hate him rebel against him and want nothing to do with him what king does that now that king just wipes them out and starts over but this king does not he sends his own son to die for him this is why we can say that it's for god's glory in the way that that saint augustine said god formed us for himself and we are restless until we find our rest in him that's what makes it fit he formed us for himself for his own glory. And then verses 4 and 5, we see the mutual glory and the Son's pending ascension. In John 17, 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus lived a life of glorification. I glorified you on earth. And you see that past tense, he's still alive. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't endured the, the preceding pains and sufferings of that yet. He hasn't been in the tomb three days yet, but it's as good as done. There is no way that he is not going to go. Jesus' life glorified the only true God, and it did nothing else. He lived to bring glory to God. Nothing in his life glorified anyone or anything else, ever. Every stage, every age, every era, every place that Jesus was, that his life brought him, brought praise to God alone. He's the only one that could ever say this, and he can say it before his life is even over. This is our Savior and our sacrifice. But what glorifies God? What does it say? I glorified you on earth. How? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How does Jesus define a life that glorifies God? It's a life of faithfulness, faithfully carrying out the commands of God. Faithfulness to God is what brings him glory. When we see a spouse in someone else's bed, it's called unfaithful. Unfaithfulness in a marriage brings humiliation, not glory. Why God, this is why God often likens the sin of his people to adultery, spiritual adultery. He says in Ezekiel 16, 32, calling Israel adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband calls it that as unfaithfulness but a faithful spouse on the other hand brings honor to their spouse faithfulness does that jesus says that he glorified god by obeying his commands by faithfulness to everything that he told him to do we cannot glorify god in any other way than the daily duty of faithfulness that's how we glorify god it's unglamorous it's not flashy it's just daily plotting one foot in front of the other faithfulness and that's how Paul says that he was, knew what he was supposed to do in 1 Corinthians 4, 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Not amazing, not captivating, not charismatic, not funny, not engaging, not famous, not known, not wealthy, not anything but faithful. Not cunning, not smart, not adept at reading and understanding the culture, not educated, faithful stewards must be found faithful therefore churches must be found faithful oftentimes what we do is opt for grand gestures instead of obedience of faithfulness we skip the lord's day worship regularly but we give a big old year-end gift we entertain pet sins but we always volunteer at the church picnic we neglect reading God's word, but we send missionaries money whenever we feel bad about that. Is that what God is after? Would you rather have a dad who ignored you all year, but on your birthday flew you to Orlando and took you to Disneyland and Universal and, and the baseball games, the basketball game, all that stuff? Or would you rather have a dad who didn't have a lot of money, 
it was always wrestling on that carpet with you, was at your little league games, was helping you with homework, was there at the dinner table, what would you rather have, the grand gesture or the daily faithfulness? We obviously understand that, but let's put it into a biblical context of an illustration. King Saul opted for the grand gesture instead of the daily faithfulness that Jesus is calling us to. He did this in 1 Samuel 15, 10 and following. I'm going to read you this. God commanded him to go to the Amalekites who had sinned previously against the entire nation of Israel, and he was going to use his people as divine judgment upon them. And he told Saul to wipe them out completely including all the way down to their animals. Take nothing. You are working as my instrument of wrath to these people. And then in verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul. Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He sees Samuel coming and says, Hey, I'm glad you're here. Blessed be God. I've done it. And then the next verse, Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? He says, how do you have all these animals? Weren't you commanded to kill them all? I'm hearing a lot of animal noises. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to, to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we've devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, stop, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, as they always do, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to, for this reason, sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Saul hears what Samuel's saying goes, I didn't disobey, they did, and I know I'm kind of in charge of them, but what they were going to do was give it up for a sacrifice anyways. So it all works out. God's definitely okay with it because we're going to use these animals for sacrifice. Don't you worry, Samuel. We got it. We'll make sure. We, we took the best. We killed the ugly sheep and the three-legged sheep, and we killed the, the dying cow and the gross one that had a weird horn. We took the best ones only, and we're going to give those to God. Don't you worry, Samuel. We, we did it. We did this grand gesture, and we took the king with us. It wasn't because I wanted to parade him around as a vanquished foe, which is certainly what he wanted to do, but rather he said, we're going to do this for the glory of God. And then Samuel responds in verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Saul, what do you think? That God would rather have grand gestures of sacrifices and burnt offerings or just simple obedience? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Saul, you're saying you're doing this for a sacrifice. I would rather have you just do what I said then you give me some grand gesture that I didn't even ask for. That's what will bring glory. And then in verse 23, he's cursed and removed from being king. What does God want? You to obey what he's plainly stated or you to innovate your life and develop and carry out grand gestures? What does he want? Obedience to the voice of God is not legalism. Otherwise, Jesus, the fountain of all grace, is a legalist. 
Because what did he say in verse 4? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, that glorified you on earth. That's how I glorified you on earth. And otherwise, he's a legalist. Obedience is faithfulness to the God of glory. See, when we say legalism, what we usually mean is you take your faith more seriously than I do, and that makes me feel uncomfortable, and I can neutralize that threat by just calling you a legalist. When legalism actually is trying to earn salvation by law-keeping or by adding on to what God has said is faithfulness, like Eve did. When she said, no, we can't even touch the fruit, let alone eat it. See, Jesus was able to pray confidently these words, knowing how he lived, that he glorified the Father because he was faithful to his word all the way to the end. That's why he could say he glorified God. This prayer anticipates what he will shout from the cross in John 19, verse 30, tetelestai, one word in Greek, three words in English, it is finished. I have accomplished. And then he closes with verse 5 saying, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We see in this closing that Jesus is just reiterating, and we're having it reiterated to us by the Spirit of God, writing this down for us, the eternal glory of the Son. It's a clear claim to deity. I was with you, and I had this glory, and in some sense, it's, I've laid it aside, and I existed before the world. John three thirteen, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man, talking about himself. John 8, 58, he, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Clear claim to deity, going back to Exodus 3 and 4. Jesus' human nature has never yet been in heaven, in glory. And Jesus is seeking to return to that heavenly glory. See, his divine nature has never left. It wasn't as if Jesus was absent from heaven. His flesh was. And this is where we get into the hypostatic union and the joining of, of, uh, of the divine and the human. But nevertheless, he's always had full glory, and he didn't stop being God. He just took on flesh. And so in a sense, that flesh had never been glorified. And he's the only true God, so he's praying for the restoration of what has always rightfully been his, that, it's, that he's coming into. And the resurrection and ascension, in his mind, is as good as done, so he's praying for the end result of that. I know I'm about to die, I know I'm about to sit in the grave, and I know I'm going to be resurrected and I'm going to send, bring me to that point. All of those things are as good as done, and that will happen. He will not fail to complete his mission. Unlike Saul, he will not fail to complete his mission and obey down to every last thing that he was called to do. So he can ask to be in the presence of God though Calvary and the tomb still await for him. See, this point in history was always going to come. He always had to have this. The cross was plan A from the beginning, and God's decree cannot fail to come to pass. So Jesus is just praying in accordance with the will of the Father for the glory of God. He's returning to glory unending. So this is an anti-Roman Catholic mass because what they do is they yank Jesus down from the glory every week so that you can really eat his flesh and really eat his blood. We gotta take him from the glory and bring him back here every week. But Jesus says, bring me back into that glory that was mine, that I had before the world existed, an unthreatened glory. Never will Jesus return to the state of incarnation like he was. He remains enthroned in glory, having perfectly achieved everything God determined. Nothing was left undone, nothing was left incomplete. So now nothing but unending glory is what awaits him. Christ reigning in glory, it bestows manifold blessing upon us. Let me read you this quote from Calvin. He says, Jesus therefore sits on high, transfusing us with his power, that he may quicken us to spiritual life, sanctify us by his spirit, adorn his church with diverse gifts of his grace, Keep it safe from all harm by his protection. Restrain the raging enemies of his cross and of our salvation by the strength of his hand. And finally, hold all power in heaven and on earth. All this he does until he shall lay low all his enemies and complete the building of his church. This is the true state of his kingdom. 
This is the power that the Father has conferred upon him until in coming to judge living and the dead, he accomplishes his final act. What a glorious Savior that he does all of that for us, that he endured all of this for us, the only motivator being love and then the glory of God. That encased even in the glory of God is a love for us. We would totally understand if it wasn't. That he didn't love us, but he glorified himself, but he loves us through glorifying himself. This is how one Puritan said to think about it. We call God glorious not only because he is glorious in himself, but because he is the bountiful author and dispenser of all glory as the sun is the fountain of all light. How do we respond to that? I could not think of any way to respond to that, but then I read a book. That's why I have all those books in there, because I don't know. Matthew Henry the Puritan, he had three points of application to this kind of text, and I thought they were fantastic. I'm going to read you those. He said, first, we must make it our business to do the work God has appointed us to do. Isn't that just what Jesus said? I did everything you gave me to do. So for you, what is that? Is that typing on a keyboard? Is that changing diapers? Is that going to the hospital? Is that whatever it is that you've been given to do? Who else is going to do it? You're the only one there doing it. So do that work. That work matters and has values. God chose you and made you for the work that he gave you. So we do that work, that just like Jesus did that work that he was given to do. And secondly, we must aim at the glory of God in everything. So in all that we do, we're typing keyboards, we're changing diapers, we're writing reports, we're, we're changing colostomy bags, we're doing whatever it is that we do for work or for maintenance or for whatever we do all day long. Think of the glory of God because that's preparing us for heaven. What else will we do there? Nothing will be done there in possibility except for the glory of God. That's all that will happen. We're preparing ourselves to make it in heaven. Not that we won't, but that's what we'll do there. So let's start doing it now. Everything to his glory. He is worthy of it, and we owe it to him. And then thirdly, lastly, he said this. We must preserve or persevere rather here to the end of our days. Persevere doing what we do, uniquely called to do, for the glory of God, and we gotta keep doing that. That there's no retirement from the kingdom of God. There's no retirement from the glorification of God. We can retire from the job that we did that wrote us paychecks, but then now what will we do? We must fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. We're not talking about big, splashy, grand moments. Just finish. I heard one old pastor say, he's in his 80s, he said, I used to want to accomplish really big things for God. I used to want to do really big, important things for God. Now I just want to finish. Now I just want to make it to the end. And that's us. Just finish. And God will be glorified by our lives, and we will be following in the likeness of our Savior, who have given us eternal life to everyone who knows the one true God and his Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for a text like this, we thank you for lifting us up out of ourselves. We, we can be so myopic, and we don't think any higher than the tops of our heads. And we, we, we fixate on the portions of Scripture, the portions of your character, as they relate to us in our everyday lives and, and what we need for the minute as we look down in the dust we thank you for lifting our eyes up. We, we are here. Our feet are still on the dirt, and we can't change that. But we can look up. We can sit and think. We can ponder and gaze upon your glory. We can contemplate our lives. First of all, our salvation, our redemption, our bringing out of darkness into light, out of death into life as it relates to your glory. We so often think of and pray along the lines of what you can do or what we need you to do for us and what we need here and now. We so sparsely think just of you, not what you can do for us, but just who you are and what you've done, how you've manifested yourself, how you've described yourself, Thank you for a passage like this.
that lifts us up out of to everyday life because we see sin and pain and rage and death and strife and wars and rumors of wars all around us and and we're inundated by it and your your word this morning lifted us out of that completely because we can see your son having lived a perfect life in an era that we never knew we were not alive 2,000 years ago but he did do it in space and in time he did pay the cost he shed his own blood to requit us from our sin and we can think upon that and then we can think upon what you were doing before earth was created before time was created we can think that we were in your minds before even then and and, and then we can think that where your son is now that he is where he was before receiving the glory that he had before and that we will be there that this is not the end that, that the anger and the rage and the strife and the, the wickedness and the sin that we see all around us, the threats of death that we see all around us all day long could not be more minor when we compare them to your glory. And, and they could not drift from our minds more swiftly when we put our minds towards glorifying you. No matter what it is, changing tires or cutting grass filing reports or sending emails that that can glorify you and that's what we will do and spend eternity doing and what a privilege it is what a privilege it is to know that beforehand we are not mystified as to what we are headed to that your disciples even in this very moment those 11 weren't mystified they were told from the mouth of Christ that he was going to prepare them a home a place to be forever. And it's where you are, and you want us there. May we rest in those things. May we not be dragged down like Jonah in the ocean by the costs and the concerns and the cares of this world. But may our eyes gaze to the heavens like Stevens did, even though he was being pummeled with rocks. He could still look up off of his situation to you and see your son glorified sitting on the throne may that be our vision every day thank you for the time that we were able to spend in your word thank you for the dear saints that you have gathered here today thank you for those who could not be here today for whatever reason we ask that you would guide watch over and protect them and thank you for your grace that just gets poured out onto us from reservoirs from on high we pray this all in the name of your Son, who bought what we could not buy, and who earned what we could.